Fantastic episode on the way today. Welcome to Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt here with Kevin Krosky, Wealth Advisor, Certified Financial Planner at True Wealth Design. Find us online at truewealthdesign.com. I know we're going to be talking about some banks, some recent current events happening in the financial landscape and dominating the news a little bit. Can't wait for Kevin's perspective on all of that. But Kevin, first of all, it's just been a couple of episodes since we've had you on and Tyler's been holding down the fort for a while. So good to catch up with you. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's been this conspiracy. You guys uh, tell me you're recording on a certain day. I don't get the invite. And then next thing I know, there's an episode released and Tyler's killing it and doing a great job. He's he somehow replaceable. He somehow slipped into the logo, and it's just like this subtle takeover that's happening. Exactly. <laughs> we, we have a growing team, and uh, I'm really happy of that. Um, and I don't think we've announced it. It's been a, a couple months now, but um, since I am actually on today, let me, let me go ahead and take the liberty. But we had um, basically the third, well, I guess, over, looking back over the last few years, we've had uh, Ron uh, Wyatt and uh, his team partner with us in, in our Pittsburgh office, and uh, we had uh, Capital Financial Group, uh, Peterson, reached out to us and you know thought we were doing a good job from what he knew of us and um, asked us to take care of his clients as he retired, and uh, we had... Uh, another one uh, at the tail end of last year and have just been working through you know, that sort of integration and onboarding process of clients from Plans to Prosper, uh, who's also in Western Pennsylvania, very near where I grew up. And we have a very strong advisor, Audrey, uh, that joined us as part of that too. So, um, so we've been growing, we've been busy, and it, truly it's been an honor you know, you have um, these advisors that spent their career in the business and um, and they've picked us to go ahead and t- continue to take great care of their clients. So uh, we don't take that very lightly. Um, it's a lot of work that's involved and um, and I'm really happy and proud that uh, that we've been able to do that and, and things continue to go well. So so that's part of the reason why, um, not just that you can, Tyler, have kind of been tricking me with the scheduling of the event, but I've been doing a lot of work on some of those transitions. There's a lot of details that need to be carefully managed and make sure that, you know, that we understand everything, get everything well integrated and continue to take great care of those clients. That's just how we were able to take advantage of you with all of the other things you were juggling. So that just made the takeover that much easier. But uh, but yes, uh, great to hear that you guys are, are having such great partnerships all across the board and uh, kind of expanding uh, the True Wealth family. Always enjoy hearing about that and what's going on in your world. So uh, thanks for the updates on that front. Uh, shall we dive into the big topic at hand? You are living under a rock if you don't know about bank crisis and all sorts of other issues that pop up from that. And it's easy to let your emotions take over here, Kevin, and get worried about your money and is it going to affect me and how's it going to wrinkle over onto all of the other parts of our financial lives. Uh, I don't know. Are we calming the waters today? What what kind of uh, approach are we taking here? <laughs> well, yes, I think so. Hopefully we'll provide okay. some clarity. Um, the <laughs> I'm chuckling here because you know online and the internet's fantastic, right? I mean, you can go on to Google or chat GPT or whatever it may be right. these days. And, um, you know, there's so much information that's out there and there's so much bad information, unfortunately. And, um, just because there's information, you don't know what's good or bad. And, and it certainly doesn't necessarily convey wisdom to you. So as I was experiencing the last week and, and watching some of these news stories and, um, seeing people that were being interviewed on some of the talking head shows that, that people may be watching, um, whether it's, you know, kind of the, the 24 hour news or specific financial news or just the general kind of, you know, nightly news or your local paper, 
It's interesting. I was I was reading these and I was listening and there was just so much incorrectness <laughs> that I was being confronted with. And you know, this is an area I'm not a banking analyst and expert, but you know, I know a pretty good deal when it comes to markets and how these instruments work. And uh, hopefully I can convey that today. But um, it's interesting because you see when you have this knowledge and you see all this min- misinformation that's out there, it's like, man, that's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, great. You know, my clients are listening to this guy or gal. I'm going to get 10 questions about this tomorrow and undo all this disaster. And then, and then you go and you read something else that maybe you're not an expert in and you just take it for face value. You're like, wow. Right. <laughs> you don't realize that same <laughs> phenomenon is happening on so many different issues, right? Oh, totally. I mean, I love uh, a good um, biography or nonfiction stuff that's on, on Netflix, but some of this stuff I watch and, uh, you know, if it's related to finance, you know, you don't know who the director is. You don't know, like, if they're informed or what motives they may have. And then I, I'll, I'll watch some of this stuff. And 10 minutes I'm in, I'm like, okay, there's so much incorrectness and there's definitely an angle here and I'm just going to turn it off. Oh so my gosh. It, wow. it's difficult to, um, those things that we've talked about many times over the years, things that you know, things that um, you don't know, you don't know, and everything in between. And, uh, you know, a lot of times clients come to us to be that uh, clear guide to them and and help make sense of uh, the world that we're in and certainly make their financial life planning work for them. So I think the news stories have gotten better over the last few days from what I've seen. Um, There was certainly a lot more scattershot early on. But nonetheless, well, I'll kind of do a quick redux here on, um, on the whole SVB thing, talk about what I think that means. And then importantly, Aaron Seil and I collaborated on an article that we have out on our website. It's called uh, Understanding Investor Protections. And it goes into some of the investor protections that people don't appreciate that they have or don't fully understand that they have you know, for your investment accounts, not your bank accounts, but for your investment accounts at places like you know, Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Pershing, you know, these, these big financial institutions. And I'll highlight some of those differences today. Um, the article, if you prefer to read, uh, it's about 2000 words. There's some graphics that go there as well, but we'll certainly touch on this today as I go through here. And we've used this quite a bit to go ahead and help allay some concerns that clients have had, uh, questions that they've had over the last several days. So we'll, we'll see where else it goes. There's so much <laughs> there's so much to talk about. But really, my point in doing this is just to try to bring some clarity around this and really what does it mean? What kind of risks are we actually taking? And then also, what does this likely mean for markets as well? Nobody has the crystal ball, but uh, I, I think I can at least make a few semi-intelligent comments there. So that's I'm what's glad. on the agenda for today. So it's good to have the Warren back to my Buffett. Walt, you ready to dive in? <laughs> I, I'm, I am ready. And, and this is why, because back when I was in journalism, like true journalism, one of the fun parts of it was you got to become an expert on a lot of different subjects. Well, quote unquote expert, you had to learn about a lot of different subjects. So something would happen like the local courthouse caught fire one day. And all of a sudden I was learning all these things about fighting fires and courthouse documents and how those are kept and what was at risk and all of these different things. And then you add this into your little basket of knowledge in life. But now with everyone being a journalist because of social media, everyone has to go through that constant evolution. So like locally, right. And, and, and you're not too far from your neck of the woods, train derailment. 
and it's national news. Everybody in the world's becoming an expert on trail derail- train derailments. And I feel like it's the same thing with this financial crisis and with the bank issue. It's like all of a sudden we're all having to pretend like we're we know what's happening with the bank with the banks and like we knew what SVB was before it happened and you know all this other stuff. So that's why it's so hard and so complex and so deep to try and put it all in a nice little basket. It's just such a vast thing to understand with so many layers. So one of the things I love about uh, being the Warren Deere Buffett, I suppose, I'll, that's quite the uh, compliment, Kevin, uh, <laughs> is, is how you can make the complex a little bit simpler and easier to understand so we can get a little smarter in the process. So can't wait for your breakdown. All right, you got it. So here, I'll give a, a kind of the quick rundown as I understand it on the bank failure. So uh, I think as many or most have heard now, you know, this Silicon Valley Bank or SVB for short, it was really concentrated from a client base standpoint for a lot of these uh, tech entrepreneurs, um, a lot of VC uh, or venture capital sort of companies, early stage technology companies. And uh, one of the things that People may have heard, they may not, but um, a lot of times there are, you know, these companies aren't profitable and they'll go out and they have to raise money um, from VC investors. And those investors are typically concentrated through venture capital funds. So some of the largest VCs are in Silicon Valley and San Francisco. And so the people that uh, run these funds may have a multitude of companies that are under their funds. So uh, we'll come back to that in a minute, but uh, that's ultimately what caused the bank run, sort of that client concentration, and not that it was just these companies all talking, but you had these uh, VC fund managers that were really directing their companies to go ahead and and move some money. So if we go back to kind of pre-COVID, and we've talked about this a lot, but you had, uh, you know, growth companies, particularly, um, I, I, Walt, I remember doing an episode why something to the extent that technology companies cannot continue to outperform. And uh, that was, I think, mid-2021. And it maybe it looks prophetic now, but it was kind of common sense, at least as I and, and many others saw it. Uh, maybe not so much to most at that point in time, because you know you're kind of in it and you just saw the stuff going up. But kind of part and parcel with that, um, these VC companies were were bringing in money, um, so they were going ahead and selling um, an equity stake and, and bringing in money, and they were putting it into SVB, you know, using that to go ahead and fund their operations, so on and so forth. And because they're, you know, they had some money coming in, but they weren't making money, you know, they consumed quite a bit of it. Uh, so that, you know, that happened. And then when COVID happened, um, and, you know, not only did we have like, you know, zero interest rates, but the government really, like, literally was, you know, providing not just monetary stimulus, like through the Federal Reserve, but uh, they provided fiscal stimulus. So uh, they were issuing uh, tax credits, you know, a few rounds of those, like American Opportunity credits, um, things like that. So people were getting checks in the mail or bigger tax refunds. And also the businesses were getting pretty significant refunds as well and credits, um, the Paycheck Protection Program or PPP or uh, ERC, I think that was uh, the employee retention credits. And so what you saw throughout the banking systems were deposits because money was created uh, were just you know, inflated quite a bit. When you looked at the year over year growth, deposits went up quite a bit. Uh, interest rates were near zero. So they weren't really paying their depositors anything. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But banks basically um, have this money, short-term money that you can demand back at any time. Uh, and they put that to work through loans. But 
it takes some time to make loans uh, and there has to be demand for them. So uh, what banks may also do is then invest some of those excess deposits into securities. And this is where SVB was a bit of an outlier. So on two fronts, it was the client concentration that I mentioned. And then disproportionately, they invested a lot more of those uh, excess deposits uh, into securities. And it's not like they were taking a ton of risk. They went out and they bought treasury notes. So, you know, generally it was about like a five-year note. Uh, and at that time, the Federal Reserve was saying, actually, even through the early 21, the Fed was saying, hey, you know, we're going to keep rates, you know, at or near zero through the end of 2024. So, you know, perhaps that helped SVB and other banks feel comfortable about taking um, a little bit longer duration risk. And ultimately, I think, as we know what happened last year in 22, you know, sure, we we had some inflation showing up, but then it was like, you know, hey, is it transitory or not? And then we had all this pent up demand from the lockdowns. You had supply chain issues because of COVID and the lockdowns. In hindsight now, we had a lot of people that did not return to the workforce. So you had the workforce was shrinking, you know, pushing up wages. Oh, oh, then, by the way, you had Russia invade Ukraine, creating an energy crisis and really skyrocketing prices there. And then China's zero COVID policy, which not too long ago, they finally moved away from. But, you know, China was locked down for a very, very long time. So you had all of this stuff working together and inflation was, you know, rampant for a while. We'll see what the future holds there, but it's still pretty high. And so the Federal Reserve started raising rates incredibly aggressively throughout 2022. You know, as we've talked on the podcast before, and I'm sure as any investor has seen on their statements, 22 was you know not a great year to be an investor. You had, you know, technology stocks broadly went down about 30 percent. Um, you had um, value stocks went down much much less than that. You know, generally single digits. Uh, but you had bonds. If you just had aggregate U.S. bonds, um, they went down more than 10 percent. So uh, it was it was a tough year for investors. But uh, that's also made it a tough year for for banks, because as interest rates went up, yeah, maybe they had to start paying a little bit more money on the deposits. There's still not much. I just logged into my Chase account. And Walt, I see I'm earning a whopping 0.01 percent in my checking account. Wow. Woohoo. Zero one. Nice. Yes, and not, it's not zero. That's hey. better than zero zero one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking positive here, um, but you know, so so rates started going up. Um, money maybe started going out. Banks, uh, you know, started competing and raising some rates. But uh, on those assets that SVB bought, uh, was generally again about five year Treasury notes. And I didn't necessarily know this is from a banking analyst standpoint. It's pretty unique accounting. But they have uh, kind of two types of securities, you know, maybe more, but one is available for sale or AFS, all these wonderful acronyms. And the other is HTM or held to maturity. So what SVB did was put a lot of these notes into the held for maturity. And uh, what that meant for them was they really just didn't have to mark them down. You know, so again, think of interest rates as they went up, the prices of the bonds went down. It's kind of a teeter-totter relationship. So that's why you know, those bond returns were negative in 22. And while you as an investor saw that negative number on your statement, on the bank balance sheet, they just put what, they're, what they paid for it. They put their cost basis on it. Sure, they may have noted separately that, hey, there's an unrealized loss on these positions. 
or maybe they put in a footnote. And to my understanding, that's what SVB did. It used to be in a table and prominently displayed. And then as it got worse <laughs> and the bank's uh, balance sheet uh, deteriorated, it it's ended gonna, up in a footnote. It's going to hide that a little bit. Just... <laughs> yeah, let's, let's make it in a, you know, hey, let's eight, eight point font sounds a lot better than mm. 12. Let's put it down there with a little footnote. And uh, so, you know, things got got tough um, and then kind of the bank run, you know, started happening from some of those VC fund uh, general partners and, and their portfolio companies. So it was just it was a classic run on the bank. Um, it was fully disclosed, you know, in the annual report. Again, it kind of moved to a footnote. Um, it was disclosed in their 10Ks. The banking regulator saw it. You know, this this is how banks work. You know, they, they take in deposits. And as uh, somebody that takes money down to the bank, you should think of it, and I'm sure most people did not think of it this way, but you are giving the bank your cash, and basically it's a loan to the bank. It's a loan that you can demand back at any time, but it is, in fact, a loan. And, you know, sure, there's FDIC coverage. And in this case, all of the depositors, whether they were insured under the FDIC limits or not, uh, were made whole. But there's certainly no guarantee of that going into this. So cash in the bank is cash in the bank. But, you know, there can be some dollars at risk. So I, we've had a lot of those conversations with clients. But real quick, if you look back further in time, go back to like the GFC there was about, 20, from what I see on the Fed's website, um, actually the FDIC's website, there was about 28% of uninsured deposits that were lost. Um, IndyMac Bank was a big one. It was a bank in California. Uh, I think the number was about $270 million of uninsured deposits were lost, and, the, and those depositors were not made whole. So, you know, there's no guarantee that you know you're going to get anything above FDIC limits. We'll see if those limits change more. But certainly anybody that had money at SVB Bank is is very lucky uh, that they got their dollars back. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I think we're all learning through this. And if we didn't know it already, we're certainly being reminded of it that, you know, the bank, the cash at the bank is a short term loan to the bank. It is a general liability of the bank. It's even though it has a, a your name on the account, uh, it's a liability of the bank. It's not necessarily your asset. So. That's, I don't know, uh, Walt, like, I'm curious. I mean, you do uh, a lot of podcasts. Um, you probably have talked to a lot of people about this, being the smart guy that you are. <laughs> but that's something that it's just people don't think of it that way. When they think of their bank deposits, they think that's like, that's incredibly safe. And I'm not saying that it's not safe, but there's risk in the commercial banking system, particularly above certain limits. Yeah. No, I, I think it makes sense. Uh, perhaps I just am lucky from having you know, been in the industry, not as an advisor, but involved in the industry for a while now, having that perspective that, you know, the the banks are have all this money at their disposal, why wouldn't they go and find ways to use that to make more than what you're making from them as part of that quote unquote loan to them? So yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective. And it's easy to then see how with all of those other factors that you were talking about, like, oh yeah, 2021, 2022, a little bit busy in the financial world. A lot of things going on, a lot of things moving and shaking in our world and drastic changes and new new territory, new ground in terms of interest rates and all these other things happening. It's not surprising that somebody kind of screwed this all up along the way. But what's kind of shocking to me is it sounds like you're telling me, Kevin, this was sort of telegraphed. Like this was in... This was disclosed in advance of happening. It just had gotten moved to the footnotes, and just people just weren't paying enough attention, and it just kind of well, slid under the well, radar. I mean, 
Well, you know, again, it was, it was some of that client concentration. I mean, it was there. I don't know if they weren't paying attention. Um, somewhat of a funny story uh, if your name isn't Jim Cramer, but you know, Jim Cramer <laughs> gave right. a buy recommendation for Silicon Valley Bank in early February when they were trading yeah. north of three hundred dollars per share, and obviously, you know, that went to zero. And, and he was like, uh, "They're way undervalued. Room to grow." Yeah. You got it. Um, so that's their liter. I don't think there was a single banking analyst uh, that had uh, SVB as a sell. I saw several. You know, JP Morgan had them uh, issued a buy rating back in November. And these are people that this is what they do day in, day out. They analyze banks. Um, so banks, again, it, it's their job to go ahead and uh, take in deposits and their short term. And then they invest longer term. That's, that's how banks work. Um, how much of a longer term and how much interest rate risk they take. You know, different banks, banks' balance sheets look differently. Silicon Valley Bank was definitely an outlier. I'm not saying it's going to happen to uh, other banks, but I don't think it will, candidly. Or I think with the protections that were put in place by, you know, the Treasury, the Fed, FDIC, um, I don't know. Maybe you have like some very small banks go out, but you know, these so, banks so that can... word contagion that became real popular the past week of this becoming a more systemic issue across the board. You're you're not getting that sense that we're heading for a. Cliff. I don't think this is 2008. Let me yeah. put it that way. I don't think yeah. it's anything close to 2008. Um, sure. I mean, there's a lot of banks. Might you have you know another bank that goes under or something like that? But yeah, it's possible. I mean, you have people uh, that do. I mean, people are emotional. I mean, that part of the brain works quicker than your rational part. And so you're going to find people that are going to be doing dumb things. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very bullish on, on people making bad decisions. Um, it just, it's inevitable. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's going to be a collection of people uh, that make these decisions and move a bunch of money out of banks. Um, I don't know where they're going to put it necessarily. Is it all going to go to JP Morgan or these other very, very large institutions? I have accounts at Chase. Uh, I have several accounts at uh, local community banks. I can tell you, Chase is my least favorite to work with. You know, I'm, I mean nothing to them. <laughs> they're, they're a global financial institution. Um, but true story, just recently, I'm like, I moved money around. I'll talk about why in a moment because, you know, we've been advising clients to do something similar that I do for the company and for myself personally. But I needed to move money around. And I said, hey, Chase, you know, I'm moving money around for payroll and for this. Uh, I need to get my, my limits increased. And so they increased my limits, went through a credit review. I think from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand dollars a day. Um, so great, I can move more than enough money for payroll for things like that, and I can keep my money working for me elsewhere rather than at the point zero one percent. Literally the week after I get that increase and go under the the credit review, the first you know a, a transfer ACH transfer that I put in it gets rejected. Um, and I'm like. <laughs> What's going on here? And and then, you know, it's all cryptic. You can't call somebody directly. You have to call in and they're, they're, that department, there's like a relay number that you have to go to. So it's like you call one person, you tell them the issue, then you get transferred to this other department. They can't really give you like any information. Um, and they say, you know, try it again or talk to like your local person. So long story short, uh, I've had, uh, I've been using these transfers for the last three years between these bank accounts, it's like clockwork. If they just look at the history in the account, okay, he does this all the time, not a big deal. 
Well, they've been, it's probably like 50-50 that they're going through these days. And it's just ridiculous. But I go to my community bank where they know me, banked with them for a while. Um, you know, they have my financial statements and your know, personal financial statement and all that. I call them over the phone. I say, hey, I'm having a problem with Chase. Can you go ahead and send a wire to me, uh, to the Chase account, send it the other way? And I, and I get it done. Um, those relationships to me matter a great deal. Chase's footprint's great. Their technology is great. Um, there's no relationship there. It's a huge company. Uh, they don't even know who Kevin Krosky is, nor do they really care. I'm sure there's, there's a lot of people that we work with that feel the same way. That's one of the reasons why they work with a firm like us. We have, you know, we're not big bureaucratic hierarchical organization. Um, we're a boutique firm. We all have skin in the game. Um, you know, we're all, but yet clients' money and their dollars are held at these big, too big to fail financial institutions in many cases. So to me, that's kind of the best of both worlds. You get the very safe, safekeeping of your assets, but you don't have to deal with the bureaucracy like I had to deal with in just moving money from Chase after I went through their credit review process and got a favorable outcome and then get summarily denied from moving money around for payroll purposes. So does that sound like venting a little bit, Walt? Just a little bit, but I mean, it's kind of fun to hear some venting every once in a while because it's, it's real. It's, it's, it's a real story. I mean, it's, it's what you're going through, what you're feeling, and probably other people feel it too. Yeah. So to, related to that, and I'm going to move on to like um, talk about the custodians here after this, but um, it's pretty remarkable that uh, these companies were able to move the amount of money out of SVB as they were as quickly as they were. <clears throat> I think something like $42 million is what you heard being requested and a lot just, you know, just went right out. Um, so apparently maybe that's one of the reasons why these companies like banking with SVB because they didn't have to go through all the brain trauma that, mm. that I have to go through in, in working with Chase. <laughs> yes. And, and it's just, it is what it is. Um, we'll see how, what, what that may mean over time. Cause obviously in this case, <laughs> you have that risk of a, a bit of a bank run, but, um, so, so that's, that's the bank side of it. So I'm not going to get into all the FDIC stuff, but I think the important takeaway is really to think of your cash at the bank as a loan to the bank. Yeah, sure. It may be insured up to amount. Maybe the FDIC does unlimited insurance going forward. Who knows? It's not there yet. But be cognizant about what risk you're taking. It's probably not as safe as what you're perceiving it before. But when we move over into the custodians, the big difference that you're going to hear me say uh, probably several times over the next several minutes is that your assets are going to be segregated. Not just that they have uh, an account with your name on it, but they are not going to be a general liability of the financial institution like your bank account is at the bank. So that's the, the key, 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 I keep on saying it, I don't want to sound like I'm singing it, difference between your accounts at these financial institutions for the investment accounts and your bank account. The assets are going to be segregated and are not a general liability of the financial institution. And probably the best example I can think of this is, um, Walt, I don't know if you were in the financial world at the time, but uh, Lehman Brothers going bankrupt in 2008 was kind of like a seminal moment. And Lehman Brothers was incredibly complex. They had insurance companies, they had a broker, they had a bank, you know, several companies under you know, the portfolio company and several different products that they created out there too. You know, the, some of the products that they had were, um, you know, people lost a lot of money because, you know, Lehman Brothers did go bankrupt and, you know, they were claiming pennies or, you know, dimes on a dollar sort of thing. But they also, I think it was like 106 billion or so that clients had in terms of these segregated investment accounts that were not a general liability that were fully recovered. 
So Lehman Brothers is kind of one of those worst case scenarios that we have looking back over the last 20 years or so. And all of those assets were fully recovered because they were segregated and they were not, let me repeat, they were not a general liability of the financial institution. And this stuff can get complicated. You know, like I mentioned, Lehman Brothers had many companies. So, you know, on on one side, you see the Lehman name and say, okay, you know, I'm fine. But, you know, then you have a Lehman product. And in that product, they're providing like an underlying guarantee that, hey, you know, this is going to be a bond-like investment and it's backed by, you know, the full faith and credit of Lehman Brothers. Well, you know, that goes away uh, into a bankruptcy and people ended up losing money. But those segregated assets were fully protected. So it can get complicated. I don't want to make it sound like it's super easy. Even you look at like Schwab or some of these companies, Schwab has a bank, they have a brokerage, there's several companies under their financial holding company. So sometimes you have to really kind of dig in a little bit deeper and really understand what sort of credit or custody to risk you're really taking. And most people probably aren't going to do that, but that is something that, that we have to do for our clients and certainly understand those risks. So many different layers and uh, ways to protect. And it's like just adding more and more definition to the word diversification, really, I think is what this whole crisis has kind of brought up and thinking, wow, there's even you think just having money in cash or at the bank is diversification. But it sounds like there's there's an even next level of diversification uh, for a lot of your clients that you're always kind of keeping an eye on and investigating for even even these things that are improbable to happen. But we want to be protected against them. Yeah, you know, I would say I've I've heard stories already of um, not to you know single any sort of um, stereotype anybody, but uh, something I was you're already ranting today and, and <laughs> ranting. Go for it. You know. I heard of a story uh, somebody was supposedly in line at the bank. This is you know probably fifth hand, so who knows? And who asked for like you know five hundred thousand dollars of cash out of her account? And um, of course, the bank could not just give that they don't for security purposes and other reasons but you know those kind of behaviors i mean you don't have to go out and open up you know 10 different accounts one of the things that we like when clients start working with us is simplifying and consolidating accounts um you know we do work we work with all the major custodians we work with schwab we work with td ameritrade that is becoming part of schwab we work with fidelity we work with um, pershing which is wholly owned by bank of new york mellon um Interestingly, that last one, um, Bank of New York Mellon, is has a s- kind of a special designation, one of 30 institutions globally. They're a globally, systemically important financial institution. This was an outcome of the financial crisis. And, um, you know, just looking at saying, hey, some of these institutions are so interconnected, we, they really have to have, you know, better reserves, better capital ratios, and better plans to go ahead and unwind in the case of, you know, something bad happening. And you probably also have seen Credit Suisse has been in, they've been in the news for a while. This bank has been in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> uh, been losing their people, losing, you know, clients have been leaving them. This isn't anything new. Um, but they are too, like one of these global CFIs, if you will, SIFI, systematically important financial institution. So I'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen here. I don't think, uh, again, I'm not an expert. I don't pretend to be one in this. I saw that they got some money from the Swiss bank today, but you're probably, they have a bunch of good assets. I wouldn't be surprised if they sell that and get, you know, kind of back to their banking roots. But uh, if something really catastrophic did happen to them, um, we haven't had any global CFIs go away. It would almost be, I would say a good test case to see what would happen, but they're just designated as, you know, they're too interconnected. Colloquially, they're too big to fail. 
So that's something that's different with, you know, um, with Bank of New York Mellon and Pershing compared to some of these others. Schwab came under a lot of pressure. It didn't really make sense to me. If you looked at their balance sheet, they also had a lot of those same treasury securities that had unrealized losses. Um, but that was, I think, a little short-sighted. And you've seen their stock price go down and then back up quite a bit over the last few days. So there's been a lot of just, I think, knee-jerk reactions. Um, <laughs> and it probably will continue to be for a while. Before I leave the investment protections, though, a couple things I should mention briefly. There's something called um, CIPIC coverage, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. It's not the same as FDIC. It's it's somewhat similar. Um, you can go to the website and read about it, but it's 500000 per account. There's cash. It's a little bit different. Or even in the case of Bernie Madoff, uh, even though he was committing fraud, and really never invested his client's money. Uh, SIPC uh, paid uh, you know, a fair amount of money to the victims of Bernie Madoff, so not a lot of people are aware of that. And then I know we're running long here, Walt. You let me kind of vent right. too much. That's no, good. I um, like it. Well, we, but, we, we've missed you for a few weeks, so you got a, you got some extra wiggle room <laughs> on this episode. Here's something that I think is really important and also isn't um, understood. So not only, you know, I mentioned about the custodians and the segregated accounts, but now think about what you hold within in those accounts. You're going to hold, you know, whether it's an individual stock, you know, that's pretty straightforward. But if you own a fund, whether it's a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund, what about that? And And here, too... There's so it's so investor friendly. I'm not talking about like, you know, you take an investment into like a, you know, a diversified basket of stocks or into a bond fund. You're, you're trying to take specific risks there, whether it's the risk of owning companies or lending to companies. That's what you, that's how you should be thinking of it. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but on a broad brush, that's it. Um, but if those companies go away, well, what then? This was a question that just came up the other day. Well, um, I just had a conversation earlier today. Client had a, a large rollover of a pension plan. Uh, it was nearly $2 million, and it's sitting in Fidelity, but in a, in a Fidelity money market fund. So not in cash, but it was a money market fund. And so, again, that fund and those assets in that fund weren't Fidelity's assets, but it, they were segregated within the fund. Um, and then when you go into the fund as well, and this could be, again, it could be a mutual fund, exchange traded fund, what have you, those are separate companies. And, and those companies uh, don't really have employees, but w w and this is all regulated on the securities laws dating back to the 1930s and 40s. Um, but you have this division of labor there. So think of like Vanguard or Dimensional Fund Advisors, who we use quite a bit. Um, even though you know they're the investment advisor, they don't own the mutual fund. Um, rather, they're appointed by the mutual fund board to go ahead and manage the fund. And then that fund also uh, has a separate custodian that really handles and takes possession of the securities, you know, the stocks and bonds, you know, what have you, within the fund. That separation between the management of the advisor and making those decisions and the custody um, of the funds, it's mandated by securities laws. So, and, and those are, again, all segregated. Um, you have banks that are holding that as well. Um, all those banks go through public accounting. And those in those cases, those are not general assets of the bank. They are segregated assets. So not only do you have the segregation of your assets with your accounts at the custodian, you know, at the Fidelity, at the Schwab, at the TD Ameritrade, and they're not a general liability of those companies, 
also within the underlying investments that you're likely to own in those accounts for the mutual funds and the ETS, you have something very similar. You have that sort of separation of church and state. You have that transparency. You have those checks and balances. You know, it's all set up to be that way to really avoid, you know, fraud and abuse. And it's worked really, really well for, for about 100 years now with those securities laws. And one final comment that I'll make there is if we just go back, I know it was sometime last year, well, I think last summer, it was something to the effect of like red flags of an investment fraud. There was a big fraud that was unfortunately being perpetrated um, throughout Northeast Ohio. And, um, and we just were talking about that since it was in our backyard and how to be on the lookout for that. that and that'd be and, episode 107 for those who want to go check that out. Thank you. Um, and, and we went right through there and talked about how, you know, again, there was no custodian, there was no separation of church and state. People were just writing, you know, checks to this, this guy's company, just like Bernie Madoff's commingling the money. It was just the fancy IOU supposedly backed by real estate, but it really wasn't. And, um, again, you, private investments can be okay, but you need to have a heightened, um, due diligence process there, you know, having, you know, an auditor, having a custodian still are very important. Private doesn't necessarily mean bad, but it does mean riskier because some of these protections aren't the same as what you have under the Securities Act for mutual funds and ETFs and things like that. So what are you keeping your eye on moving forward out of what we've seen from the crisis so far? You know, I'll give you my opinion. I'm not going to, I'm not going to shy away from this. Okay. Um, I mean, you, you're on a roll and- today. You might as well go with it. Yes, I got all this pent up sort of vocalization, and, <laughs> you, and this is why you have I'm, to regularly be on the podcast. Like, get this stuff off your chest. That sounds like, <laughs> and I, you know, I will be. And I'm taking a moment here to pause as I skim through to see what's happening in the market because it's it's changing so quickly. Um, so here's my gut, and, and I'm, I'm just going from the gut here. And and as I do that, um, let me I guess first say it's always important to be highly diversified in your portfolio and your investment strategy. It's always important to know what risks you are taking with each investment within themselves and also their contribution to the whole of your portfolio. You really want to build something that's robust. I'll call it robust to chaos, regardless of what happens, you know, with growth, with interest rates, with whatever it may be. So that's kind of, you know, first and foremost, um, the thing that I think is really interesting right now is what's happened with interest rates. I mean, you've just had some really crazy moves in interest rates. Um, you know, they were going up quite a bit and we went from really expecting the Federal Reserve to price in about a, a half a percent increase at the meeting this month uh, and about, you know, a full percent over the course of this year to that swinging back fully the opposite direction with actually decreasing rates a full percentage point by the end of the year. And I, I surely don't know what they're going to do, but there's still a fair amount of inflation that's out there. There's all kinds of problems with the CPI. Um, there's some lagged components that are there. Um, there's a pr- producer price index that's still fairly high. It's, you know, it's in the threes now, but it's, you know, it's closer to four than it is the three. And you have short-term rates, um, if you look out just like three months or so for treasury bills, that are still pretty darn close to 5%. And if you go out to a 10-year rate, it's about, it got down to a low of about 3.3. It's actually up to about 3.6 as I look at, you know, the market here on March 16th at 2.55 time stamped. Um, so we've had a ton of volatility and it just seems like when you're building that portfolio, sure, you know, 5% sounds better than 35 
But one of the things that you need to think about too is like when interest rates fall, having a little bit more duration like you do in a, in a 10 year or seven year bond compared to something that's only a few months can really give you a little bit more oomph, if you will, technical term there, Walt, oomph mm -hmm. uh, to offset equity price declines. And so usually you want to keep, you know, some duration in there, um, some longer data bonds. But, uh, you know, with the rate moves that we've seen recently and inflation is still being pretty sticky and, and, and fairly elevated, um, I'm, I'm questioning how much duration we have in our portfolio and, and I'm expecting to make uh, send out a client letter and be making some some tweaks to our portfolio here. So um, that's all I'll say. I don't, I don't want to get too far into the weeds and certainly don't want to discuss specific investments on the podcast. But for our clients that are listening, we're going to release this podcast a little bit ahead of schedule, hopefully to bring a little bit more clarity and reassurance to all the um, uncertainty that's been going on, but um, but do expect some changes. I mean, <laughs> the markets are changing pretty quickly. Uh, so, you know, who knows? I mean, what I'm seeing now could be gone in a day or two. I'll make that uh, caveat. But um, I fully expect that we're going to be, you know, kind of buying some shorter term bonds um, and going to be yielding, you know, close to that 5% rate that I mentioned. And it's going to be less credit risk in the portfolio, which should be good in some different environments. It's easy to say you're going to do that, and people may be thinking that even that aren't clients say, "Yeah, well, I'm going to do that." But then you have to ask yourself, "Well, where am I going to take it from?" <laughs> Not that says I'm going to buy more of it. Where am I going to take it from? And then that gets into a whole other sort of portfolio construction process. So it's never as simple as it seems, but it should always be process driven. And it always needs to be highly diversified and robust to chaos. Fantastic. Well, thank you for the excellent breakdown of everything, Kevin. Really enjoyed all the detail in today's episode, and, and good having you back on, of course. And if you have any questions for Kevin that have come to mind from listening to today's show or want to talk with an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team and see if you might be a good fit, uh, you can just go to truewealthdesign.com, click on the Are We Right For You button to schedule your 15-minute call with an experienced advisor at True Wealth Design. Again, that's truewealthdesign.com, also linked in the description of today's show. And you can always call 855-TWD-PLAN if you prefer the phone method, 855-893-7526. Also in the show notes of today's episode, we're going to link to the blog post uh, that, that Kevin and team worked on about understanding those investor protections some more. If you want to check out some of the graphics and some additional details about that. And we'll also link back to episode 107 if you want to learn a little bit more about that local fraud that happened in the Ohio area uh, that we covered a couple of months back. Check that out there as well. Kevin, any final words or uh, are, are you worded out for today's episode? No, I, I think just in general, you know, if you look back, you know, kind of pre-COVID, you know, markets were just kind of rolling and then we had a blip for COVID and it was, it didn't take very long for markets to recover. So I think you know, most people got a pass there. Uh, and then 2022 hit and um, I think a lot of people got a wake up call. Um, maybe a lot of people had some, what I would call unnecessary losses from non-robust investment process and decisions. And I, I it just doesn't seem like it's going to be smooth sailing anytime soon. So hopefully people are making smart decisions. Hopefully people have somebody that's trustworthy and competent that they can work with. And, uh, if they don't, or if they have a one, a second opinion, you know, we are happy to be that second opinion and be a sounding board for them. Again, we got links for you in the description of today's show, or just go to truewealthdesign.com to get in touch that way. Kevin, thanks for all the help on the program, and looking forward to what we'll have on tap next month. All right. Thank you, Walt. All right. Take care. That's Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We'll see you next time on Retire Smarter. 
Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.